Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to be addressing the question of just how malleable is reality. My guest is my old friend Cynthia Sue Larson. She is the author of Reality Shifts, When Consciousness Changes the Physical World. She also publishes the Reality Shifts newsletter in which she has been collecting stories for many, many years from people all around the world who experience strange disruptions in their reality. She is also author of Quantum Jumps, and The Aura Advantage. This is an internet interview, and now let me switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Cynthia Sue. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you today, too. We've known each other for a, a very long time, and throughout that entire time, you have made a study of unusual events. Most people just sort of dismiss it as one of those things, and they forget about it. But you've made a point of recording the stories of people, particularly when, for example, objects disappear and then mysteriously reappear. Absolutely. And I've been tracking this phenomenon because it seemed to me substantial, even though it is, like you say, just one of those things. And thanks to you, just this last week, I finally discovered the work of Mary Rose um, Barrington that I was not aware of, who's done fabulous research. And I'm so excited to find that. Uh, but yes, I have been dedicating my life's work, really, to studying this phenomenon. And, uh, you know, almost everybody has the example. It's almost a joke. People talk about socks that go missing. <laughs> and, and I hear comedians say, where are all those socks? You know, they must be collecting somewhere. But, <laughs> but the tendency is always, uh, you know, to blame ourselves. After all, human memory is uh, faulty. Human consciousness uh, can have all sorts of errors and, and folly. So when things go missing and then disappear mysteriously, sometimes uh, in unusual places, uh, we tend to think it must be my fault. I didn't remember. That is quite natural. And often that's the case. So I would like to make sure that people know that I'm not just tracking this meaningless phenomenon of forgetfulness, what some people might consider early onset. Alzheimer's, but um, I, these are some harsh terms that some skeptics use when looking at people who experience this phenomenon. They say, well, how do you know you're not just getting some cognitive decline? It's happening early for you. Um, you know, but of course, you want to consider these possibilities as terrifying as they might personally be. But I do not find that's the case because most of the experiencers who have been reporting these firsthand uh, documented case histories to me are very well known in some fields. Often they don't want their name recognized or associated with the phenomenon because there's such a stigma to it. But I have heard from high-ranking officials in various governments 
around the world, including our own, including the Pentagon. So um, this is not something that's going to go away anytime soon. It is actually a lot more normal and everyday, and I think it's a natural part of our lives. So that's why I'm excited to share that, so that people can start seeing that it's part of nature, part of who we are as human beings, and it can be a lot of fun, too. It doesn't need to be a terrifying experience, although sometimes people are scared when they feel like they're not in control. You know, we're conditioned to believe that external reality is solid and stable and follows the laws of Newtonian physics pretty much. Uh, but now it, it seems to me that quantum physics is making, uh, you know, at the cutting edge of theoretical quantum physics, we're, we're beginning to understand that the distinction between, uh, our consciousness and the world at large, uh, is something of an artificial distinction. That, that the world at large is intimately related to our own consciousness. I love your view on that. And this is one of the reasons I've, been such a fan of your show for all these years. I think that you've been one of the first to really bring this concept forward with some of the leading authorities and uh, that I consider front runners in the field of consciousness who are, are not just looking at the Newtonian solutions, which don't really accommodate much of the phenomenon that so many of us are witnessing. It's, it becomes, imp I can see why people would say that's impossible. This uh, Newtonian physics does not allow for things to appear, disappear, transform, or transport. You know, that's not allowable in our Newtonian classical physics. Agreed. If you, that's all you're looking at. But clearly, there's something more going on. And really, thanks to the work of many of the pioneers in this field that most of whom I think you've had on your show, thank goodness, over the years, we're starting to see this world is so much bigger than Newtonian classical physics would ever accommodate. Well, I think you're very brave to be collecting these and to be reporting on them because I I know with regard to macro psychokinesis, the, the natural tendency is for people to disbelieve and, and to regard anybody who reports these things as some kind of a fool or charlatan. And the the kinds of phenomenon that you have been studying, I think, are even a little more bizarre. Yes, <laughs> that's putting it mildly. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was mentioning that these things start with just one of those things, like the book that wonderful book that Mary Rose Barrington wrote. And she studied this. I'm so glad she did in the 1990s, tracing the phenomenon back to the 50s and earlier. But yes, um, when I've looked at it, I didn't know about her work. That's a good thing. That was really good because then I was able to do what I've done 20 years of every month documenting story, uh, firsthand reports from experiencers themselves in their own words. Um, showing the broad breadth and depth of this phenomenon, which I have found to also include what you might call time shifts. This is where things really get interesting. So it's much more than just one of those things with the socks and the keys, which most of us, if we're honest, will admit this has happened to pretty much everybody. And But then the things that when you open your mind to the possibility, maybe reality is moving with our thoughts, with our consciousness, and if you are brave, and like like I've been, like I just put the intention out there, show me more, let me see the range of this phenomenon. Wow, um, some really interesting stuff occurs, a little beyond the typology even that Mary Rose Barrington created, um, but not, but it's very much well suited to it. So, 
Yeah, it's, it's exciting. To take an extreme example, uh, which is a fascinating one, a case in point, because you shared it with other people. You talk about this large sundial sculpture out at the Berkeley Marina. You live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and uh, th that's an object that uh, it must weigh a ton or more. And uh, you uh, have been out there many times with your friends and uh, at that location when it wasn't there. And then you come back on other occasions and there it is. Yes, this was extraordinary for me to witness with other people. These are people that I'd worked with in a professional capacity in the financial sector for a Fortune 500 firm. We were all high-level managers, to give some context. Um, I had an MBA degree. These are I'm just putting that out there so you know, this did take courage for me. Uh, what happened before we witnessed the shift is I had been talking to them about the subject, which they were open to hearing. Okay, well, that's the setup. <laughs> so I was saying, have you guys ever witnessed reality shift? And they said, what do you mean? And they trust me and they were, uh, they knew uh, we'd work together. We, um, I was on the fast track to becoming a senior vice president at Citibank, just to give it some context. These are not people that don't know what they're doing in the world. So, um, but then when I said this to them, I'm not going to name them because there's still a stigma to this whole thing, but, um, Yes, all three of us, um, after I mentioned, I asked that question, and then one of them said, hold that thought. Do you two remember ever having seen the sundial sculpture here? And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is actually happening like seconds after I raised the topic and they're willing to hear it. And then look what's happened here. Um, yes, it was a gigantic concrete sundial sculpture, the biggest sundial I've ever seen in my life. And it's apparently uh, at that time, this was now the 19... Late 1980s, um, it, it it just showed up because we had been walking through this courtyard where there was another statue situated on a little bit of a hill, looking out over the bay, and now you can't really see that Archer sun um, sculpture because this gigantic, what is it like 15, 20 feet tall concrete statue is there, big enough for children to climb on. So uh, yes, and the, then I looked at the the little inscription on the plaque that was on top of the sundial. And I checked in with the harbor master because people were asking me, well, have you checked with the harbor master? Maybe this is a new installation. Maybe they literally installed it like last weekend or something. No, the, the inscription said that that statue had been there for decades, <laughs> which it looked like. It looked old. And the harbor master said it's been there for decades. So this is classic um, in the sense that with these just one of those things, reality shifts, uh, often the object has a backstory. Now it's got this entire alternate history new to me that it had just been there for decades. And there's no way I could have walked through that plaza with my friends because now it's always been there. But I remember and my friends remember that we had always walked right through that that plaza. It's most interesting because it's such a large object. I mean, it's it's easy to understand how a smaller object could be misplaced. But something like this suggests very strongly that reality uh, is malleable. It's changeable. It's not quite what we uh, naively assume it to be. Yeah, it really does bring these questions foremost to my mind. Um, it did at that time as well. And for me personally, it was a little scary because now I thought, wow, I'm out of the closet <laughs> because I hadn't really talked about the subject much. This Remember, this is like the, the 1980s, the late 1980s, 
going into the early 1990s, and it was not a common topic. You know this. You've been here this whole time, so thank goodness. Um, but for, for those of us who are, remember the internet, there wasn't much of an internet then at all, but I began to, that was the beginning of, um, after, well, a few years after that. It took me time to get my courage, but then I started a website, realityshifters.com, and became sort of like the lighthouse, if you will, out there in the internet for people to find before there was social media, before people could talk about things like this. Um, and I did not know about the Society for Psychical Research that Mary Rose Barrington was part of, but I'm glad that there are these organizations around the world doing this. Well, work. even amongst parapsychologists, th this sort of phenomenon is rarely discussed at all. It doesn't fit into our normal categories of extrasensory perception and, and psychokinesis. Although I'll give you a, a story, a similar one. Um, in the early years of the 1970s, when I was working with Ted Owens, the PK man, he gave me a present. And it was a very unusual watch. It was a watch with two different dials on it. And when he gave it to me, and I think it was an expensive watch, probably a gold watch, um, he said, Jeffrey, never let this watch out of your possession. Make sure you hang on to it. So I, I took that watch and I, I had an office in a, in a research laboratory and I took that watch and I put it inside of a wooden box where I had some other objects used for testing psychokinesis big metal bars and the like. And I put them all in, in a wooden cigar box. And I put the wooden cigar box on the top shelf of a closet that was in my office and in this private laboratory building where there were very few visitors. And uh, one day, I went to check the box, make sure everything was still there. And everything in the box was there but that watch. Uh, that that watch had had never re, has never reappeared, and you know I had the feeling Ted Owens, uh, for those of our viewers who may not know, he he uh, claimed to be producing uh, a very extraordinary macro psychokinetic phenomenon using the agency of what he called the space intelligences, hyperspace beings. And I'm of the impression that he reported all kinds of events like this in his life, poltergeist phenomenon and, and things coming and going all the time. Uh, I'm of, under, under the opinion that one interpretation when things disappear and then reappear is that uh, hyperspace is involved in some way, that people from uh, or entities from a higher spatial dimension can interact in our 3D space or, or, or 4D spaces, some like to add time, and uh, they can come in and out of it at, at will uh, in ways that seem very mysterious to us. The whole uh, synchronicity, if you will, or the meaningfulness of my having witnessed that sundial sculpture, I think that's very relevant because it represents time and space. So when you look to see what's causing these kinds of reality shifts, I think we need to recognize we are still learning about ourselves. So it could be levels of ourselves, levels of consciousness we're connected with. And there's definitely a lot more going on than I think we currently even have the technology or full awareness to 
properly credit. So we're, we're learning about this, obviously, and it's, uh, it's very big. So I don't know. I, I know some people do credit these space, um, beings. I know, I think Yuri Geller, uh, you know, he's another one who's had some remarkable, uh, manifestations and so forth. And I think, I don't know, I haven't met him personally, but I've heard and I've read his books that he sometimes credits his connection with maybe extraterrestrials or travelers through space and time. That's possible. What I like to do, though, is get back on as solid ground as we can and go to look at the work of John Archibald Wheeler. He's a physicist, and I do some genealogical research as a hobby. I found out I'm related to him. We share like my 10th great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. <laughs> so he's a cousin. So proud that he's my cousin. Uh, John Archibald Wheeler had some ex- beautiful theories, and he was a contemporary of Albert Einstein. So he, again, I want you to recognize this was a great thinker, a great um, person in the realm of physics. And he appreciated that we live in a participatory universe which means that when you ask nature questions, you get answers back. Henry Stapp is a neighbor of mine here in Berkeley, and he's continuing with that Wheeler thought and doing research and writing books about this right now. Brilliant books. And the other idea of John Archibald Wheeler that's extremely relevant is delayed choice, which is now being proven to be, it was a theory when John Archibald Wheeler was coming up with it. Now it's been proven true in some of our double slit experiments that the future um, consciousness in the future can affect our present and the past. And I'm seeing a lot of that in these reality shifts that I've been tracking. Well, since you bring it up, uh, I did do, a, as I recall, a complete interview on the delayed choice double slit experiment with a physicist, Edward R. Close. And uh, I'm going to link to it if our viewers are curious about that. It's a very significant finding in physics. And uh, in, in the upper right-hand corner of your screen is a hot link right now that will take you to that video for viewers who who are interested. Uh, but let me just say this. It's interesting you should bring up Wheeler because uh, he exemplifies the uh, unusual sociological situation that phenomenon like this are in. He did brilliant, very advanced theoretical work, but he was uh, one of the people who uh, accused J.B. Rhine, the founder of modern parapsychology, of fraud. And, and in fact, Wheeler, to his credit, apologized uh, for doing that. He had to apologize because it was a baseless accusation. Well, like I said earlier, there's a stigma to this, and I'm sure, as brilliant as Wheeler was, he knew that. He knew this was suicide, a professional suicide at that time, just to just buddy-buddy up with paranormal researchers and say, oh, they're my friends, and yes, we're just going to be all wishy-washy about these quantum physics terms that are just now coming (laughs) out. I don't think he felt like he could do that. I say that also because I know some physicists right now who privately are fascinated by my work, want copies of my book. Uh, when I, I've told one of them, you did not exist for me in a previous reality. That's why I did not put your work in my book, Quantum Jumps. He understood. He got it. Uh, so these, uh, we're not yet at that point where everybody can talk about this openly. And, and I think that did affect John Archibald Wheeler. I don't know. I never got to talk to him 
But you're right. It's amazing how on track he was with everything from wormholes, which I pretty much got on the cover of my book, Quantum Jumps, and this idea, like, maybe maybe that's going on. His idea of it from bit, which a lot of people love to think, are we in a simulation? Well, there he is again. Wheeler was just right. He had his finger on the pulse of where we are today. And I know that, um, for example, Elizabeth Rauscher, who is uh, a friend of both of us back back in the day when when we all lived in the Bay Area, uh, uh, she corresponded with him about her parapsychology research, and they had a friendly relationship. So it's not as if he was always hostile to the field, but his attack against J.B. Rhine, as I recall, was in a major science publication. And uh, all I can say is I'm very glad he apologized and retracted his attack. It's it's unfortunate that many people today still uh, think along those lines, but uh, but I think it's changing. And and with regard to your work, Cynthia, uh, the problem is that we're dealing with uh, events that are spontaneous. They don't necessarily occur in the laboratory, so it's anecdotal. And there's always the possibility of of some unacknowledged uh, artifact or factor that could have caused any of those uh, experiences. This is true. And at the same time, just like when doctors like Dr. Larry Dossie will look at case histories, for example, and he'll say, okay, there was spontaneous remission that people, they say that this happened. And that's their case history. And um, it's not, it's, he doesn't like the disparaging term anecdotal evidence. So I think the wording is really important when we get into this field. And you're right, there will be skeptics, there will be detractors. I'm currently on the the threshold with everyone else in the world who's looking at this so-called Mandela effect, which I believe is just a, it's a furthering of the reality shift phenomenon with uh, large groups of people now around the world experiencing together changes. And so that still doesn't prove anything. And we can still have people suggesting that there's confabulation or faulty memory happening. But it's very interesting to me that we've taken the same phenomenon happening on an individual level. And as you bring in more people, you've got more people um, adding to the discussion and hopefully keeping it civil. <laughs> but it, it can be heated at times. So you bring up some very good points. Uh, okay, let's define what the Mandela effect is. I know I hear a lot about it on the Internet, but... Uh, it, I used to think it was the Mandela effect, but it's Mandela, named after Nelson Mandela. Yes, and if you look at this, just one of those things, if people are familiar with that, they feel like, okay, I understand that. Or maybe they've heard the term reality shifts previously from PMH Atwater, who I believe is the first author to use that term. And I want to give her credit for that. The Mandela effect now is named after Nelson Mandela, not the Mandala. Uh, Nelson Mandela, some people, I think Art Bell was actually the first one to announce on his Coast to Coast radio show back in the late 1980s, maybe 1990s, he was talking about, does anybody else remember Nelson Mandela died? And because Art Bell was such a big uh, figure on the Coast to Coast program, so many people listened to it. People called in, they faxed in. This is before the internet, really. And uh, he got deluged with people saying, yes, I do remember Nelson Mandela died, but now it looks like he's alive. 
So this is another aspect of this very large, interesting reality shifts phenomenon, which I call this aspect of it alive again. Um, it's kind of misleading because what's really happening, I don't know. We could be viewing parallel alternate realities that our consciousness moves between, which is what I tend to think it might be happening. The Mandela effect, though, is global, and not everybody agrees. So you'll have people who notice that the... Like American Thanksgiving used to always be on the third Thursday of November. That's what I remember. And other people say, no, that's not true. It's always been like the fourth Thursday, which seems odd to me. Or people might remember the Haas Avocados from California, spelled H-A-A-S. They might remember Stouffer's Stovetop Stuffing. Uh, these items never existed, and they are, never were that. It's it's always been Kraft's Stovetop Stuffing. Haas avocados are always spelled Hass, H-A-S-S. And even weirder, physiological changes happening and inside our bodies have been happening. I think my personal favorite is the kidney relocation. So um, the Mandela effect includes large numbers of people remembering that a kidney punch is an illegal move in boxing because, and if you put your hands on your where you think your kidneys are to protect them right now, you probably put them on your lower back. Like you would be, like if you're walking up some steep incline and you just rest for a minute, you put your hands back over your kidneys. That's where they used to be. Um, what's interesting is for 8 billion people on the planet, the kidneys have moved on into the relative safety of inside the rib cage and up and forward a little bit, just a little bit, but it's enough that it's noticeable and it makes no sense now to have an illegal move not to hit an area where the kidneys don't exist. So, in a nutshell, the, the Mandela effect is even bigger than this. It's um, because it's a global phenomenon. People have all sorts of theories. Uh, some people are anti-science, in my opinion, and they're going after CERN and saying that the scientists are causing this. I don't think we need to look that far. <laughs> I think I think it's just the same that we that Mary Rose Barrington has been tracking for um, and the Society for Psychical Research. I'm so glad to find these people because they've been tracking the same phenomenon, although a very narrow piece of it, but very much the same phenomenon for a long time. So I'm glad to see that. You've collected, I'm guessing at this point, probably over a thousand examples. Over 2,000. Um, I'm, I'm just starting now to tabulate using the typologies that have been crafted by these brilliant researchers. So I'm going to start at the beginning. All of my work is on my website. So I'm just starting on page one of your reality shifter stories. Other people can do this too. Everything's right there. And um, I'm going to go through and put it into the categories like they have. Things disappearing, appearing, reappearing, um, transforming is what I've been calling it. They have slightly different names for these things, but it's the same thing. And then then time shifts start occurring, which I've also been tracking all this time. So by keeping it wide open, I've got some very, some outliers. <laughs> some of these reports, it's like, well, not sure where to put this one. It's very interesting though. And obviously reality has shifted. Obviously, people are are going to say, you know, the human mind is is so uh, prone to make errors that uh, re reality is reality and and consciousness is consciousness. They are two separate worlds, and uh, we can trust reality. Uh, consciousness we can't trust. Like mountains don't disappear. 
Well, I actually heard from people, and I, I hear what you're saying, and I can certainly see that viewpoint. And we're back again to that classical Newtonian view. Until you've actually had something like this happen or witnessed a spontaneous remission, when you know you're riddled with cancer and now it's gone, or you had a, you know, a broken bone and it's gone. But I actually have heard from people who said they look out their kitchen window and sometimes the mountains are different. I've heard this from people that I believe and trust. They're not doing psychotropic drugs not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that if you know if you use it thoughtfully but they weren't doing they weren't drunk <laughs> they weren't in some strange state of mind they literally would notice um, sometimes people notice trees are different boulders are different entire sections of the city can be different houses barns buildings can actually appear as if out of nowhere or disappear so when i say that this is very much like just one of those things but bigger, um, this reality shift phenomenon that I've been tracking, it's really true. So there seems to be no limit to the size of objects that something is. It could actually happen on a universal scale. And I suppose another uh, area that seems related are people who report missing time. Absolutely. Yeah, time is something people notice big changes with quite often. Um, they'll get into a, what I consider the perfect optimal reality shifting state of mind when they're on a long drive, for example. They're actually daydreaming as they're driving. And this is one of the most frequent reports that I've gotten over 20 years. People traveling a, a, um, a, a period of a length of freeway that should have taken maybe five or six hours to traverse, but they did it in two hours and they were not going 300 miles an hour or something. They were traveling a regular speed and they left at the usual time in the morning or whatever and showed up hours before they sh should have arrived, you know, before there's any reason that anyone could have expected them to arrive, short of having some transporter from Star Trek or, you know, <laughs> a teleportation device. I uh, did an interview, I'm going to link to it as well, with Lance Mungia, who was the pr producer of uh, Russell Targ's movie Third Eye Spies. And Lance reported an instance in which he was driving his car on the freeway and uh, it got late and he pulled over to, uh, as I recall the story, I hope I'm getting this right, he pulled over uh, to an arrest area to uh, take a nap. He was getting tired. And when he awoke, the car was like a hundred feet up the hill above the rest area and, and, and in the middle of the woods. And they had to get a uh, special tow truck uh, to pull the car down to bring it to uh, back to the highway after that. He has no idea how the car got transported like that into a wooded area. Now, now, when I receive a story, a firsthand report like that, my I, I do exchange a series of emails before I publish it. My question, and I'm, you probably, I need to watch that show now, so excited, but I would be definitely asking, like I'm sure you did, Lance, um, were there any signs of the car having been moved into that wooded area? It was, um, you know, did you, hopefully, I don't know that he got photographic evidence, but that would be optimal, like just to see, like there it is, and it did not drive in there. Like, like, that's what I would expect based on the sorts of reports I've received, that when these things happen, it's like they got airdropped in. And, and I've had that happen in my house with like a carton of milk landing in the refrigerator that um, I could hear, the door was shut to the fridge, I could hear it land. And I was talking to a friend about how we were out of milk, sorry, and I hear a clunk, and like, huh, 
Well, that's weird. Did you hear that sound? <laughs> Open their fridge and there it is. So if that kind of thing can happen and does happen, of course, why not a car in the woods? Yes. It's the first I've heard of it, but fits the pattern. <laughs> well, in fact, I did ask Lance about that. And he told me, no, there were no tire tracks uh, showing that the car had been driven up up through the woods to that spot. And there would have been quite um, evidence, a lot of evidence, because obviously, you know, if you're tracking someone through the woods, everything from a broken twig to, um, you know, what have you, just a, signs of driving through. Cars are heavy. They weigh a lot. So it would have left something. That's fascinating. I suppose we could go on and on about these kinds of stories. They seem to be far more common than people appreciate. Yes, they're very common. And that's why I think people are now reporting this Mandela effect. And that's how they're finding that's their gateway to this phenomenon currently is to hear that there's dialogue changes in movies. And um, sometimes some one particular shift will grab them and catch their interest. Um, I was just listening to one of the top debunkers currently. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. And when people talk about the Mandela effect, they usually mention her name because she, she's a, a court, she's a psychologist who's an expert witness on how language can steer people's awareness. Um, even if they are, um, like a witness in some kind of a, you know, legal case, uh, even if they're supposedly there to identify someone, um, they can be steered. And so what was interesting was hearing her on a sh radio program, the Rippin' Rabbit Hole show, with a magician from Las Vegas, AJ. And I, I love that he's a magician because he understands how the mind can play tricks. And they were also talking with Evan Matreya, who tracks Mandela effects and studies them. And that conversation was fascinating because in the conversation, number one, I could see Elizabeth using language that the very thing she studies, she was using it to say that these are false memories when people have experienced an alternate history. She said that they, um, that there's disinformation. She was using very leading terminology. That was the first interesting observation. I'm not too surprised by that. The second interesting observation was when two particular examples came up from The Wizard of Oz, AJ and Evan asked um, Dr. Loftus, what do you remember that the witch said to the monkeys when they were flying? And she said, um, she couldn't quite remember, but she did eventually say it, it was fly my pretties fly. Um, and they said that is no longer ever in the movie The Wizard of Oz, and it never has been, and it never was. And then they asked her another one um, in the old show with Grace Burns and Gracie uh, Allen. At the end of each show, Grace Burns would turn to jo Gracie George Burns. George Burns. Thank you. <laughs> A little mistake there. Yeah. So you remember. So George would turn to Gracie and he'd say, say goodnight, Gracie. And then what would Gracie say? She'd say goodnight, Gracie. I remember that too. And now she's never said that. But Dr. Loftus, the, the debunker of this, who gets cited all the time for the Mandela effect and how it's confabulation, she said, good night, Gracie. And then she said, wow, I need to study this more. So uh, that's where we are with this phenomenon currently. It's, you're very current right now because I'm the... I mean, I'm the president of a new nonprofit, the Mandela Effect Conference, and we will be um, raising money to do research in this field. And I don't know how we're going to do it because science is not set up to study it, as you pointed out. But we are going to get creative and see what we can do. 
Well, Cynthia Sue Larson, I commend you for your courage and your vision to look into this sort of very elusive, very controversial phenomenon. It's so good that we have people like you who are tracking these sorts of things. Uh, otherwise, uh, it would be just one of these things that everybody would ignore. Absolutely. And I feel at this time when people are feeling hopeless, this can give us hope. I see within this phenomenon that um, this is the way nature works. Uh, I, I like to look at hopeful philosophers such as Leibniz, who created calculus, one of the two inventors of it. We still use his notation. And he believed that, that uh, science looks for elegance. And he also believed that there is a, an optimistic view of things. He liked to look at perception and levels of awareness of that perception, like calculus. And I think that's what's going on with this exact phenomenon, that through the levels of perception that we bring to it, we're capable of seeing much more. And it's, it's such an exciting time for all of us, and so hopeful, so positive. It's a way to pretty much get through any challenge, and it could explain leaps in evolutionary progress. So, yes, yeah, so this is definitely fascinating, and I could talk about it for a long time. Well, we'll have to have more conversations, Cynthia. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.